Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you have any questions along the way, along the ride, or the journey with us, uh, we would love to take time to answer those questions. You can send them to us in three ways. One, an email. Email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you can direct message us on social media. We have an Instagram account and a Facebook account, both under the Grove CH as our handles. Uh, You can DM us there and get, get those questions to us as well. And if you are jumping in, if this is your first episode and you just want to jump in to the reading plan, that's okay. We are on day 176, if you want Guys, to. we are almost halfway through the year. Through the year. At 182.5, technically, it's halfway through the year. So we are going to hit the halfway point this in this coming week. So uh, well done if you've stuck with us so far. That's yeah. a big deal. Beloved listener Tim reached out and asked if our reading plan next year was going to have 366 days because it's a leap year. And I was like, no, we're taking a day off. Tim. I was like, no, I don't think so because we're kind of we're kind of subject to what is on you version because you know it's pretty hard to make a plan and and I shouldn't say it's hard to make. Well, it's it would be a difficult thing to make a plan. Uh, it is particularly difficult to make a plan and submit it and and get it. Approved. It's true and get so, it approved in time. Yes, yeah, it's just one of those things. So we are. We're subject to the plans that are available there. But that's not what you care about, listeners. What you care about... Yes, this they do. Our is, listeners care deeply about ...is us. this week's readings. Uh, we are starting off in Isaiah. We're reading chapters 12 and 17. Uh, Isaiah 12 is a short and beautiful chapter celebrating God's glory, uh, his, his salvation, seemingly looking forward to God's eternal salvation in the new heaven and new earth. It's one of those things where we have the benefit of being Christians. And so looking on the other side of this, like I think this is what he's talking about here. Uh, but we'll just, I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's only six verses. But it says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for through for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. All right. I mean, that's just pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward, but I do love the idea of it, it's looking forward to a day. Um, and, and some of the language that is used is the language that is later on used in the New Testament to describe the new heavens and the new yeah. earth. Um, so that's why I, I particularly put it there as well. Um, it's just... I, and this is something that's going to, it's going to be a theme that we talk about today. It's the wrath of God contrasted with his mercy. And those two things aren't at odds. Like God, God has both, like God is righteously angry over our sin, but at the same time, God is also ready to extend mercy. And he points forward to something that is going to come at the end that is more beautiful. Um, and this is true of Israel. And I, I, with with Israel in the exile, it's hard to say it's more beautiful after they come back, but at the very least, there's a moment where God uh, gives them mercy and brings them back into Jerusalem. And then for us as Christians, we can look forward to a relationship with God that will be more full in the future, which mm-hmm. is an awesome thing. 
Uh, and then chapter 17 is a prophecy against both northern Israel and Damascus, uh, Damascus being the capital of Syria. And remember, this is the kind of the main rival of Israel at this point before, you know, another uh, nation, which has the name Syria in it, also comes, uh, also rises up and... Yeah, it goes real bad. So anyway, <laughs> uh, Isaiah prophesies that both Israel and Syria will fall, uh, and we see that Israel has fallen into the same trap as so many of the kings by trusting an alliance over Yahweh. Come on, guys. Yeah, and it's kind of just the idea of Israel. Um, eventually, what they do is they make they kind of make friends with Syria. It's like, hey, you know, this is gonna this is gonna be okay. This is gonna be all right. Uh, and then no, <laughs> no, it will no. not be. Uh, and going into Chronicles and Kings, uh, and I just put, there's a bunch, we're just going to kind of jump back and forth here. Uh, but starting in 2 Chronicles 28 and 2 Kings 16, this gives us uh, some more info about good old Ahaz. So I realized we we shouldn't have ranked technically last Listen, week. Listen, it's my fault, Kay. I put him on the list. I shouldn't have put him on the list yet. My bad. I know. What, what are you going to do? But listen, listeners. Total transparency. Evan yelled at me earlier this I, week. I did. So. I, I screamed. I would... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I cried a little too. Uh, full disclosure, I mean, there's nothing that Ahaz is going to be able to do to get himself out of the worst category anyway, Correct. short of just like, and then he put away all the idols and led the people into perfect worship of Yahweh. No, that's uh, not this king. No, he does not do that. So we but find someone out, does. Yeah, we find out that Ahaz travels to Syria in the midst of Judah being assailed by the surrounding nations. This includes Edom and Philistia. Uh, and he sees the altar that the Syrians had built their God. And he's hey, that's like, cool. I know. He's like, whoa. That's a cool altar. I want one. Um, and so he tells Uriah, the high priest, hey, I need you to build a replica of this altar and get rid of that stupid altar that was built to the exact spef- specifications of Yahweh. Yeah, while who we cares were, about that Yeah, one. that's stupid. Why would we He's keep so that He's so old school. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, why? Yeah, and I put in parentheses, because why would you keep that? You know, why would you hold on to the altar that's yeah. built exactly the way that God well, old. commanded It's old. I mean, it's archaic. Oh, um, man. Yeah, why can't we have a cool altar? We should just throw it out with the Old Testament. My goodness. Wait, what? Did I just say that? <laughs> just kidding. All right. So uh, so Uriah listens, and so they- Good job, and, dummy. Yeah, eventually, uh, after being subdued by the Syrians, Ahaz takes the lesson. So, sorry. The Syrians come down. They attack Jerusalem. They kind of plunder it. So, yep. I, like I said, it's, it's not the f- the fall to the Babylonians is not the first time that Jerusalem is sacked. It's the first time that's completely uh, that the city completely falls. I suppose is the way to put it there. Uh, and so Ahaz learns the lesson from this. Not that hey, maybe I should follow God more closely. Like maybe I should actually listen to the commands that He says. Instead, the lessons that he takes is uh, man, those Syrians gods really they really helped out the Syrians. So why don't I just follow those gods instead? Uh, and obviously that does not work. Very That'll work well. out real well for no one. Yeah, exactly. He jumps on the Syrian god bandwagon, uh, and then he closes up the temple, which I believe, Aaron, you can correct me on this maybe, but I believe this is the first time we see this in Kings. That's that one of the kings actually full on closes the temple for business and uh, and doesn't allow sacrifice to Yahweh on. The I believe you're anymore. right. Yeah, and it'll. I don't, happen. I don't recall reading it anywhere else as of yet. Yeah, I believe it. And then there's one more king who I famously don't care for, who also does the exact same thing. So yeah, not not great. And then Ahaz builds more and more altars to the gods of Syria, hoping that, you know, they'll help him out, hoping that the gods are going to be like, oh, hey, that Ahaz guy, he's basically like, uh, he's basically like a Syrian. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, enough of that Ahaz guy. Uh, in Second Kings chapter 18, we are introduced to his son, Hezekiah. 
Dun, dun, uh, and spoiler alert for the king's tier list, but here's how he's described. Uh, in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby. So, hey, there you go. Listen, this is where I, I got the shorthand spelling of my daughter's name, just an FYI. Oh, there and you go. shout out to my friend, Micah. He's the one that was preaching on this to senior luncheon or whatever back in his church. Uh, and he's like, cause I, Cassie and I had gone back and forth about how do we shorten Abby's name? Abby, Abigail is her full name. So A-B-B-Y is how it's normally spelled, right? Right, right, right. But because of this passage, I got my way. I like it. it was A-B-I, so. Well, cause you all wanted to know that. And, and we're told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father had done. Holla. He removed the high places. Hey, yes. that's, that's a big one. He broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah and he broke in pieces, the bronze serpent that Moses had, had made for until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. And it was called Nehustuan. Uh, that's a kind of a bummer. I got to say, like, it's not, I mean, he, it's clear that he had done the right thing. He's not rebuked for doing this, mm-hmm. uh, but it is a bummer that this, what should have been a symbol of God's faithfulness. And listeners, if you don't remember, um, while they're in the wilderness, there are, uh, there's a, basically a plague that affects, actually not plague's the wrong word, but they're all assailed by a sickness. Uh, and so God commands Moses to build a bronze snake. They place it in the middle of the camp. And when the Israelites look upon it, they are healed. Uh, this is why, if you ever wondered why, you know, local hospitals have the symbol of a bronze serpent, that's why it's, it's that story. Uh, and, but, what should have been a testament to the faithfulness of Yahweh instead becomes another idol because the Israelites at this point are addicted to having just anything that they can have, anything that they can worship, they're going to try and do it. Uh, and so Hezekiah breaks it apart. And then we're told he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there were none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Well, that's quite a statement. Let's go. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses and the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the King of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. All right. Well, listener, (laughs) I think you get an idea of where Hezekiah is going to rank, but you know, we'll, we'll check out the rest of his life here as well. He's not a perfect man. He doesn't, he doesn't die this episode. So you're going to have to wait till next week to figure out where we, I guess we're going to have to go through a lot of Isaiah before we actually get to the death of Hezekiah, aren't we? So anyway, well, there's also a lot of Psalms and Proverbs coming too. Oh, that's right. Oh my word. All right. I actually think next week's a heavy Psalm and Proverbs week. Is it? Is it (laughs) again? I haven't looked at it I don't remember because I remember we talked about this weeks ago. And I, it all of a sudden hit and I was like, wait a minute, is this the week? Is so, this the Psalms and Proverbs week? I think it might be, but oh, I didn't read too far ahead yet. All right. Well, we jump back to Israel and slightly back in time uh, to see the Hosh- to, to see Hosea take the throne from Pekah or Pekah. Pekah. I like uh, Pekah better. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so we're told that Hosea... Uh, Aaron, can you believe this, that a king of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord? This is the first king that does evil, uh, right? Oh my gosh. We're, but we are told that he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not to the level of the other kings of Israel. Hey. So it's kind of the opposite. Top notch bad king. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite where Hezekiah is, you know, some of the kings of Judah get that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but then there's that extra disclaimer of like his father, David, which is kind of that extra oomph. Yeah. This is the opposite. you're the kind of a good, a good, okay king. Yeah. This is like, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, but he does get the extra oomph of, but you know, 
not as bad. Yeah. <laughs> like he could have been, he could have been worse. So even God is grading on a curve as he's uh, <laughs> breathing out this scripture. So there oh. you go. And this is pre, this is pre Jesus. So wow. Yeah. Boom. All right. Well, and then Hoshea is a vassal king under Assyria, uh, and he is eventually taken prisoner for not paying tribute. What do you mean by vassal? That's a great point for uh, me who doesn't understand. So it's kind of just the idea that you exist as your own nation, but you are a king under the direct control of another king. Uh, think Herod in the New Testament, where he is under Rome. Like, so Israel is not independent. They are subject to the laws of Rome, but he is the king of Judea. Um, or you can think of like half of the Egyptian pharaohs once the Alexander the Great comes. I shouldn't say half, there's more pharaohs beforehand, but that's kind of the idea there. So thank you. That helps me a lot. Hey, there you go. Uh, well, speaking of Hosea, let's talk about Hosea. Ooh. Not the same person. Remove the H. Exactly. Hosea is a prophet. Uh, he is the first minor prophet book listed in the Bible. So if you get to that section, he's the first one there. Uh, he's not the first chronologically, but he's among the first. So yeah. he's definitely one of the earlier minor prophets. And he essentially ministers at the same time as Isaiah. In the first line of the book, he goes from Uzziah is the first king. I forgot who the last king was, but remember, Isaiah is called at the death of King Uzziah. So they're very similar as far as when they're ministering. Uh, like many of the prophets, Hosea is commanded by God to live out a metaphor for the message that he is delivering. Uh, Hosea's is kind of extreme. Uh, yeah, and, it is. And it, it's, it's cool. It's a really beautiful story, uh, but I think sometimes we read it and we're just like, holy cow. <laughs> like, why, the only one that comes close to me in my mind is the uh, with some of the stuff when we get to Ezekiel, uh, which is also some really, f- I don't know, I, there's a couple stories there that I think are really funny, but I probably They're shouldn't hilarious. think. Hilarious. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, I'm thankful God's not calling me to do those things. The famous one being when God tells him to cook uh, over human feces and he's like, whoa, whoa, like, what about- Pump the brakes, Lord. Can we use cow instead? And God's like, yeah, that's fine. Go for it. So yeah. there you go. Uh, that's my paraphrase. And whoever says that God is not a, one who negotiates or is willing to have a conversation, yeah. read that passage. That was, that was very cool of God to <laughs> at least bring it down a little bit. Um, okay. So in Hosea's case, God is wants to tell Israel that they have been unfaithful to him. And the metaphor that he's used, and he's used this before, is the metaphor of an unfaithful bride to her husband. And so what does God tell Hosea to do? He tells her to go com, uh, go marry a woman who he knows is going to be unfaithful to him. Uh, what we're told is the literal translation is to, to take a wife of whoredom. Um, and so we don't know. Gomer is the, his wife's name. We don't know if that phrase wife of whoredom means that she is a literal prostitute, like he's going and marrying a prostitute, or it just means that he's marrying a promiscuous woman who he is aware that will not be faithful to him. Um, and I guess at the, at the end of the day, it doesn't super matter because the, the end result is the same. Uh, they proceed to have three children. Although only the first child is described as being born to Hosea. Uh, The other two are described as just being born, uh, which could mean nothing, or it could mean that the second two are not Hosea's natural children either. So this whole situation is kind of a bummer. Um, They are named Jezreel, No Mercy, and Not My People. Uh, The second two names being huge bars, (laughs) if you're just going to walk around with those. Uh, The first name, if you're wondering, what is Jezreel? Uh, That is the valley where two very important things happen. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, So we are told that God commands Hosea to name his first son Jezreel for he will, he's going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood spilled in the valley of Jezreel. Now, Aaron, I don't remember if I brought- Wait a minute. Did I bring this up on the air or was it just after we stopped recording? It was was after. Okay. Okay. So a few weeks ago, we were ranking King Jehu and we, we landed on the idea that he is the only king of Israel that is 
<clears throat> that is okay. Like he's not he's not a bad king. He's not yeah. a wor- he's not the worst. He actually does like he's the top notch Israel king. Yeah, and yeah, like if you're grading on a curve, A plus king. He's of, the best Israel. in Israel. Um, and so we're, he is told by God to end the line of Ahab. So, or to destroy the house of Ahab. So Ahab dies in battle, but Jehu is the one who kills all of his sons uh, in the Valley of Jezreel. And he is the one who also has Jezebel killed as well, which, you know, kudos, kudos for killing Jezebel because she is the worst. Um, But in Kings, he is celebrated for this. God says, hey, great job doing what I called you to do. And so it's really confusing when in Hosea, we read that God is going to punish the house of Jehu for the blood spilt in Jezreel. And so I looked into this because it did really bother me. After we stopped recording the episode a few weeks ago, I was like, what is this? Like, okay, I'm I'm not sure how we're going to deal with this. But, you know, we had a few weeks to kind of look into it. So here's where I kind of found it, some of the research. Um, There's two options for how you can synthesize this. Option number one is God is punishing Jehu for his motivation, um, but not for the action. So he does what God commanded, but he does so with a poor motivation. Sorry, listen, I have to drink some water here really quick. <laughs> this is great. This is great radio, but I'm, I'm not well, doing Well, it's not a radio first off, so that helps a lot. I'm not, listeners, I'm not doing good today. This is just kind of a- He's still adjusting to being a new dad. Oh, yeah. In case you are, you missed last week's episode, it was the first episode back. Oh, yeah, that's true. That Evan was, is now a dad. And so uh, I was a little disappointed, to be honest with you, that we didn't get to celebrate nearly as much as I was hoping to, because I think Evan was like, meh, whatever. Uh, and it's not true. He's in the dad fog. That's what he's in. Dad, that's that's the season of life he's in right now. So Yeah, Joel decided to wake up at- uh, 3.30 last night. But he's a good kid. Oh, so he's far. a great, great kid. And then not go to bed until Is 6.30. he an okay kid, a bad kid, the worst kid? I would, I would rank him as a, a he's great a, kid. He's a great kid. He's a top tier kid. <laughs> you know, just at night. At, Should we rank all of the staff kids? I would say he's a top tier kid during the day and then a, like a, an F tier kid during the night. So if we could just synthesize those two. Anyway, anyway oh, sorry. Awesome. I'm just a little, I'm a little tired, a little bit. Uh, my voice is a little bit wacky. But, you know, getting back to Jehu and all of that. This, so the first option would be Jehu is being punished, not for what he did, but for the motivations behind what he did. The I, I think of um, Balaam. If you remember back to Numbers, he is the false prophet or kind of a real prophet. It's kind of confusing about what his whole deal is. Um, but he goes and he does what God commands, but God is still going to – he still puts the angel to kill him because – uh, Balaam's heart is not in the right place. Mm-hmm. He's not doing it for the right reasons. So that could be what's happening here where Jehu did what God commanded, uh, but he was doing it not because God commanded it, but because he wanted to get the power of being king. Uh, the other option is that the house of Jehu refers to Israel as a whole and not specifically the line, the dynasty, the dynastic line of of the kings that come after Jehu. Because so, Jehu was a king of Israel, so sometimes the, the the nation is attributed with the identity of the king in that time right. too. So, and that is a, that so is a, that's the comparison that that we're making here. Yeah, you'll you'll see Ju- Judah, for instance, is often referred to as the house of David. Yeah. Um, although that's a it's a hard comparison because there is no other line in Judah. Well, it's but always... technically, if Jehu is the David of Israel, <laughs> that, yeah, 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 that analogy fits. It could be. Uh, <laughs> and so under this the way that you would synthesize it is there's something, there's someone else who is killed in the Valley of Jezreel. It's not just Ahab's family. Fittingly enough though, Ahab is a part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is where Ahab allows and Jezebel actually arranges for the murder of Naboth, who Ahab wanted to buy his vineyard from. So you might remember that story. And and he was told no. Yep. Ahab was told no because Naboth didn't want to sell it. And so then he complains to 
Jezebel and Jezebel says, well, is it, wait, Je- yeah, Jezebel. So that, that's the whole point. Like that's the idea is that because Naboth was murdered uh, for his, so that way Ahab can acquire the field, that, that could be the reason for the punishment here yeah. too. And Jezebel does the whole mobster thing of, hey, let me take care of that for you. And then she just has him murdered. Hey, he died. Um, this field is not fair game. Go take it. And remember, Ahab, our God is angry enough with Ahab that that is when he says that your line is going to be destroyed. So uh, both of these could make sense in their own ways. I tend to lean towards option two. The difficulty with option two is Hosea uses the language both of the house of Jehu and the house of Israel. So he could be distinguishing between the two, um, but I think he's using those interchangeably and this is punishing Israel for what Ahab had done there or so. So that's that's the way I interpret it though. Very open-handed. You yeah. could also interpret it the other way as well. Uh, but his other kids, sorry, getting back to Hosea here, are named No Mercy because God's patience with Israel uh, has run out. Uh, not Judah yet. Not yet. <laughs> but Hosea is actually very specific on that. But his... Uh, his Mercy, his patience with Israel has run out. And then finally, his final or his third child, second son is named not my people uh, because, and this is a scary statement, because the people are no longer Yahweh's people. We'll see as the book goes on. This is not a permanent thing, but he is saying like, yeah, this is getting revoked for a while. You guys Mm -hmm. aren't going to be my people for a little bit. Uh, After this, however, Hosea tells the people that this will not be forever uh, and that like uh, that like God promised to Abraham, the people of Israel will be numerous and be children of God, which I thought was really interesting because so God tells, or through Hosea, God says that he is going to still fulfill the covenant of Abraham. He doesn't go back to the Davidic covenant, which still the people of Israel would be under, even though they're not under the kings of David. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a promise made to the the United Nation at that point. Uh, but he goes even further back. Abraham is the earliest ancestor that... Uh, who 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 can be rightfully called? I guess he wouldn't be an Israelite because his grandson is Israel, but you know he's the father of the nation in in that sense. Um, and I think it's just it's a again it's just a beautiful thing where I think sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we think of and I've heard I've had people say this to me before of like, well, God in the Old Testament is just really mean, and then in the New Testament he's really merciful. Uh, no, there's definitely both, and we just for whatever reason we just don't focus on the aspects of mercy in the Old Testament, and I guess it's because the people of Israel never take advantage of it. I shouldn't say never, but they don't take advantage of it. And eventually... But they're quick to rebel or they're quick to forget, right? So we have more in the Old Testament pictures of the history of God's people being established with no redemption apart from sacrifices. So when the temple breaks down, when when the kings break down and they serve other gods, like there's no redemption. There's no reconciliation being offered because the sacrifices are no longer happening, but the sacrifices are pagan in in heart and motivation. So it we don't see mercy in the Old Testament as much because for the lack of a better way to put it, there's not much reason for mercy because mm-hmm. of their ongoing rebellion. But even in the midst, so have these moments of mercy throughout God's judgment, they're pretty significant. And I think they're probably one of my favorite parts, even as we're reading through it this year, it's just that continual re- reiteration of, man, God, you were so good and so patient. Absolutely. Uh, so in chapter two, we get a poetic section where Yahweh, through Hosea, really leans into the metaphor of the unfaithful wife. Uh, he describes the woman Israel as running around and pursuing her lovers or false gods. Uh, eventually, God says that he will make it impossible to pursue them, forcing Israel to come back. At this point, Israel will be punished for their unfaithfulness and particularly their disregard for the seriousness of their sin. Uh, however, the 
the chapter ends with a promise of mercy. And I just put, here's a couple of highlights that really stood out to me. Uh, this is chapter two, verses 14 through 15. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Um, which I think is, it's a, this is a big theme in Hosea as well, is God kind of, it's kind of like when you have a, a married couple reconciling after a, diff, after a difficult season of marriage and, and the kind of refrain is to think back to what it was like when they first got married. That's what God's doing here where he's talking about, he, he references multiple times, like when you came out of Egypt, like restoring that relationship, which is kind of interesting because it's not like it stays good for very long. Cause you know, from the moment they get out of Egypt, unless he's talking about like Joshua, like actually taking hold of the land, but the golden calf is not long after Egypt, but God is still talking about about this time of early on when they were much more dedicated to him. And Israel at this point has been centuries of just open rebellion and not worshiping God at all. So it is kind of a huge bummer. Uh, and then in verses 21 through 23, he says, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God, which if you've listened to this podcast for a while, listen, you know that that's probably my favorite line in the whole Bible of the, the different ways it's said, but you will be my people and I will mm. be your God. God is saying that. It's true. So good. Uh, in chapter three, it gives us an account of Hosea being commanded to once again act out what God, what God has described. These are the most famous passages in Hosea. We don't talk about the rest of the book. Yeah, like, they're boring. The rest of the book are boring. Yeah, we just talk about like that first bit in the first chapter and this I'm paragraph. I'm kind of kidding. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're. it's definitely, I guess it's the most unique part of Hosea for sure. Uh, but this is what we're getting. It's just five verses. Uh, and the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a, le a lethech of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will be also to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice, or pillar without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come to fear the Lord and and to His goodness in the latter days. So, yeah, it's just, it's a it's, it's this moment here where we see Hosea being commanded by God to act out what God is going to do with Israel and also what Christ is going to do for us. Um, and in particular here, so we we don't know we don't, we're not told exactly what happened, but somehow. Uh, Gomer has ended up in slavery. So either she sold herself into slavery, she ran away um, and, and left left Hosea and the kids and then found herself in the situation. Uh, but the important thing here is that Hosea finds himself having to pay a ransom that's for that he shouldn't have to pay. Sound familiar? Wait. Uh, and, and, and in order to take his unfaithful wife back, and then he promises faithfulness and expects that of her. Um yeah, it's the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> it very, it's, it's just a shadow of Jesus of, of does what, that for you and me. Exactly. Uh, so really cool moment that we get to see there where not, it's not just showing what God is going to do for Israel. It's also pointing forward to the greatest act of redemption mm -hmm. uh, that is coming on later in scripture. 
Uh, chapter four sees God lay out his case against Israel. Uh, he begins by saying that they show no faithfulness or steadfast love and that they have no knowledge of God. Uh, and then he leans into the priest, which I think is actually really fitting, right? Because who are the who are the people who are responsible for telling the people about the law of Yahweh and who he is? It's the priests. And so he says, let no one contend and let no one accuse for with you is my contention. O priest, you shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. And and so remember, like we see this kind of happen where the priests and the prophets of Israel are not what priests and prophets are supposed to be. Well, I shouldn't say all the prophets. And I'm sure it wasn't actually all the priests either, but by and large, this is what was going on, right? Uh, and even remember like Ahab, and I forgot the other king, but someone else says something really similar where it's like, ah, we can go talk to that prophet, but he's always really mean to me because he's, he's just saying the truth. And it's like the, the implication there being that there's other prophets that are telling him what he wants to hear, but then there's the prophets of actual, there's the, the actual prophets of God, like Elijah and Elisha, uh, who are not going to do that. Um, I also love that God says he won't be punishing um, later on this passage. He says that he won't punish the unfaithful wives and daughters of Israel because the men sleep with prostitutes all the time. And so the idea that's kind of getting hinted at is that the, so the, everyone's being sexually unfaithful. Uh, and so the men are like, God, why aren't you punishing our wives for committing adultery on us or our daughters for being promiscuous and God's kind of returning because you're doing the exact same thing. And so it, it is kind of cool to see God call out the hypocrisy in that moment as well of expecting uh, justice for sin that other people are committing while expecting leniency for yourself for committing the same sin. In chapter five, God lays out that punishment is coming for both Israel and Judah. Uh, and so Hosea is not just concerned with judgment coming for Israel, although that's the main thing he's talking about. He also talks about Judah. Uh, and he says that both have been faithless and that they will seek, there, there will come a day where he will seek, they will seek him, but not find him for God has withdrawn. Uh, and I can't help but think of the passage in Ezekiel where Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord depart the temple and depart Jerusalem for the final time. Uh, I can't help but think that that's what this is pointing towards. Chapter six and seven demonstrate that Israel and Judah are both unrepentant in their hearts, uh, even if they go through the motions sometimes. Uh, and so here's a couple examples, but remember, we talked about this. This is a major theme of the prophetic books is that there are people, and particularly this seems to be a problem in Judah where they kind of give lip service to the law and they'll fall, you know, they'll do sacrifices and they'll celebrate the holy days, but they won't actually live like, <laughs> they won't actually live lives in service to who God is and, and following them with their hearts. And so we see in Hosea six chapter, uh, sorry, verses six through seven, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant there. They dealt faithlessly with me. Another one, woe to them for they have strayed from me, destruction to them for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their heart, from the heart, but they wail upon their bread, their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. And so with that one, I thought that one was really interesting too, because what it's getting at is not that um, when the people of Israel, God is saying, when the people of Israel cry out, they're not crying out to repent of their sin. They're not crying out with their hearts. They're crying out because they want 
a better harvest <laughs> or they want more grain. They want more wine. They mm-hmm. want things from God instead of wanting to simply know God, um, which I think is, that's a very convicting thought for today. It's true. Of when we pray, are we wanting things from God or are we thanking God for, for who he is? Uh, chapters eight through 10 lay out a terrifying picture of Israel's coming judgment. And I just, I just did a couple highlights from this as well. Uh, Hosea chapter eight, in verse two, it says, to me, they will cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Uh, and I can't help but think here of when Jesus talks about at the end at the end of judgment, there will be people who say, uh, Lord, did we not do this in your name? And Jesus will say, no, we, but you did not know me. It's kind of the same terrifying idea here where Israel will say, no, God, like God, we know you. Of course we know you. And God's going to be like, no, you, you didn't. In uh, verse 13, It says, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. And there it's talking about uh, not not a physical return, but a a metaphorical return to Egypt, right? Where it's, they're going to once again be under the thumb of another empire. Uh, That's where God finds Israel. Uh, I shouldn't say finds Israel because obviously he makes his promises to Abraham, but God delivers Israel out of Egypt. He delivers them from out of the thumb of a mighty empire. And when he's, and when they finally broken covenant enough times that God's like, okay, we're done here. That's where he puts them back. <laughs> he, not, not to <laughs> Egypt, but he puts them back under the thumbs of empires. Mm-hmm. Uh, in chapter nine, verse 10. It says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruit on a fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and they consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and they became detestable like the thing that they loved. So in other words, God's saying like, he, he brought, again, he brought them out of Egypt and when they were a young nation and yet they... You see it with the golden calf right away where it says, behold, these are the gods that have brought us out of Egypt. Uh, And then Baal is kind of just that. It's that one God that more than any of the other gods, the people of Israel really seem to struggle with giving up. And, and, you know, Yahweh has had his hat. He's had it with this. Uh, And then finally in this section, chapter 10, verses 13 to 14, you have plowed iniquity and you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in, and in the multitude of warriors. Therefore, tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arabel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Um, I just thought this was a really cool way that God is dispensing justice because he's saying you're trusting in your warriors. Okay. Uh, then you're going to go to war and it's not going to go out. It's not going to go well for you. So if you were, if you trusted in God, he would deliver you. If you're going to trust in your own warriors, then that you, you, you kind of, you get what you're trusting in right now. Uh, chapter 11 shows the pain within Yahweh as he is preparing to discipline Israel. Um, he talks about how he loved them and he brought them out of Egypt and they have betrayed that love. Um, I, I love this chapter because it's just a really interesting picture into the heart of God, which we don't get as much of in the Old Testament, because when we see um, God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, we obviously see him in a much more human way. And so we get mm-hmm. to see like the the, inter- the internal conflict some of the times and, and, the, and the emotion, like Jesus weeping uh, when Lazarus dies or in the Garden of Gethsemane before um, he is killed, like just kind of wrestling through all of that. We don't see as much of that in the Old Testament. So I thought Hosea chapter 11 is a really cool just peek yeah. into what is going through God's mind during all of this. It reminds me of when my dad, uh, he would spank me as a kid, if you're part of the generation who got spanked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would say, this is going to hurt me more than hurt you. And in my childhood, I'm like, 
you're the one with the paddle in your hand. Smacking don't you my lie butt. To me. Don't, don't, but it is like as a dad, like it, the last thing I want to do is, is discipline my children. The last thing I want to do is punish them, but I have to like in the mm. times because I'm trying to raise them uh, to be not selfish. So, so there is this human nature, or not human nature. We see our, our nature connected to God's nature in this passage for sure. Mm-hmm. So I thought that, yeah, that's really good. Uh, chapters 12 and 13 continue to lay out the coming judgments for both Israel and Judah. Uh, and it shows that Israel has even, in, uh, they have even uh, participated in human sacrifice. So not great. And we see that Just the worst. Of, yeah. We see that happen uh, at the kind of towards the end of Israel as a nation. Spoilers. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> they engage in human sacrifice. Uh, and we're going to see that being kind of the... Uh, that's kind of the deal breaker with Judah as well, but we'll get there and it'll be actually a little bit listeners because it's going to be uh, Hezekiah's, is his son or his grandson who, uh, anyway, spoilers. Stop we'll, getting hit. I know. We'll talk about that. We later. haven't even talked about Hezekiah much beyond just the intro you gave her. True. Okay. True. Uh, and then the book of Hosea ends with chapter 14 and a final plea to return to Yahweh ending with this line, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So it's basically just reminders like, look at the law, follow the law, come back to the Lord. They don't. <laughs> so uh, bummer. Sad. Uh, we're also going to go to Isaiah chapter 28. Uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because it's kind of dealing with the same themes of Hosea, uh, where he's talking a lot about the judgment that is coming. And he uses the uh, Ephraim and Jerusalem, Ephraim being uh, kind of the major tribe in Israel. And I believe that's the, that's the tribe where Jeroboam is from, right? The first king? I, I could be wrong. on that. I should have looked I don't it up. remember. I'm such a dummy for not looking that up. Sorry, listeners. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's what Isaiah chapter 8, 28 is talking about. Uh, After this, we're going to jump back into Kings for a little bit before we get to Aaron's section. Uh, We see that King Shalamansar of Assyria has invaded Israel and captures Samaria after three years, and the Israelites are taken away into captivity. So, yeah, it is pretty quick. Uh, That is the beginning of the end. For well, the Israelites. Well, that's the end. <laughs> that's, that's the end well, of the end. Oh, I guess, I mean, they're not like all dead, but yeah. uh, the nation is over. There's no more kingdom of Israel. And after Israel resettles Samaria uh, with people from other nations, so this would be a thing that Assyria would do, is they would conquer a nation, they would bring, they would exile the people to other parts of the empire, and they would bring in people from other parts of the empire, intermix everybody. And the idea there is is to destroy any sense of national identity that you would have. Um, So the people who live there, obviously, they're not going to follow the law of Yahweh because they've never heard the law of God. Uh, and they're punished for this. We see that there's a plague of lions, which I mean, that's a cool one. I gotta say, <laughs> of all the plagues, it's a re- yes. that's pretty sweet. Uh, and so eventually the king of Assyria sends a Jewish priest to teach them the law. Uh, however, surprise, they don't really follow it all that much. And so the new nation, Shocker. yeah, the new nation of Samaria is very similar to Israel in that they somewhat fear the Lord, like they know who he is, but they worship a bunch of other gods as well. Um, so basically the demographics of the nation change and Assyria rules over it and they all kind of intermingle and that's it. Okay. Total transparency. I forgot, I, I forgot that we hit Hosea. I thought there was one more King. There's not one more King. Just kidding. Oh, so mm-hmm. the, yep. Israel's over. Israel is done. Goodbye, Israel. 
Well, we're going to jump into a little bit more of Isaiah. Uh, But first, listeners, we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, Those are kind of the two platforms where the most people listen. So it helps the algorithm kind of push it out there a little bit more. On Spotify, we're actually closing in on 200 reviews. We are. We're at 194 today. As of 194. As of today. As of the recording of this episode. We're going to be close. We're going to be close. And then uh, on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we will read it on the air, just like we're doing for Ohio Skeet. Ohio Skeet. So left us one on June 7th. Thank you for this podcast uh, review. This is what he says. He titles it, the he or she, I guess, titles it the dream team. Well, thank you. So uh, I call MJ. Um, it says this, the pod, this podcast is consistently a delight to listen to. The hosts exhibit exceptional engagement and demonstrate a commendable ability to delve into the depths of biblical knowledge. That sounds like an Evan sentence if I've ever read one. Um, definitely something a compliment to you. It says they skillfully cater to individuals with prior academic theology experience. Thank you, Evan. Offering novel insights while simultaneously ensuring that even the most recent adherent can grasp the subject matter. I am immense, I am immensely grateful for having discovered this podcast. Evan and Aaron, I extend my sincerest gratitude for your dedication and the considerable effort you invest in producing this exceptional content. Uh, well, thank you for that. And then they do say this, P.S., the deciding factor, and this again is a shout out to Evan, uh, deciding factor that compelled me to leave a five-star review was the inclusion of the reference to Liberty's Kids. Hey, Liberty's Kids is a good time. You know, it's great. <laughs> and I know it's you because I'm like, I don't even know what Liberty's Kids is. I literally had to Google it after that episode and even in reading this podcast review. I was like, that's right. What is that? Pl- oh, okay. And so- remember, it's made possible from generous donations from viewers like you. <laughs> It was a PBS uh, show. So, and then they confess that they're a little behind and delayed. Uh, when you we put out podcasts that are an hour and a half ish long, it's okay to be delayed. We understand, but we appreciate you taking time to leave that review. Uh, and so, maybe you're listening, and maybe you feel a little bit delayed. There's still no time like the present to leave us a review. Well, and I will say too, like it, this is just kind of random, but on, when you because we can look into the stats and stuff, about half of our listenership is kind of just poking around in all the past and about half are actually following along week by week. So nothing wrong. If this is, if we're way in the future and you're one of those listeners, who's just kind of like picking episodes that sound interesting. Hey, we love you too. You are also, thanks for being part of it. You are also a beloved listener. We, all of our listeners are beloved except for that one. That one listener is not beloved. Who? I'm just, I'm talking about me. No, I'm just joking. I listen. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, And that, I mean, and even on that point for a second, like that's also part of the reason why at at the top of this podcast, we always reference the day that we're reading, the start of the week, the day that we're reading. Uh, so that way it's an easier reference point for you if you're reading along the, with uh, in the plan or maybe you're a little behind. We just want to be able to keep you current with the reading that you're doing. Um, so that's the whole part of it if you're doing the podcast. So yeah, thanks for listening along and joining us on the podcast journey. Uh, as Evan said earlier, we are jumping into uh, Isaiah again. Uh, if you if you're anything like me, I don't like necessarily the fact that we're jumping all over the place and having to go to Isaiah chapter one after we've already read, read like twelve chapters of Isaiah. The prophets are a little confusing, but again, you got to remember if we're reading it in succession as the the history of events is happening. So if you if you remember at the top, we also introduced Hezekiah. We talked about Ahaz and followed up and then talked about Hezekiah. Then we jumped into all these prophets. And so that's, we're still in that, in that stretch as well, where Hezekiah, this is just the beginning of Hezekiah's reign. I should, I should point out as well that, um, remember that the Bible is made up of different genres. And so for us, like today, we think like, why would, why would Isaiah not be in chronological order? It's arranged thematically. Um, 
it's kind of like if you read like a book of poetry, which granted is that's more rare that you would find, but that's it, they work the same way. Most of them aren't arranged in I wrote this poem in this, this one. And this, yeah, it's arranged in themes, right? Yeah. So it's poems about this and poems about this. A lot of the prophets are arranged that way, where it's thematic prophecies about certain things that are grouped together, even if they took place, you know, years apart from each other and different things happened in between. Um, you also see that with the gospels, where a lot of the times it's arranged by the types of miracles that Jesus did, and it's telling those sorts of things, but then it jumps around in time a little bit. Um, it's it's confusing to us because we don't read many books or watch many stories um, that are told like that, but this is a very common thing in ancient Semitic cultures. Yeah. It, it, people wouldn't be reading this and thinking it was confusing. This is the way that it, many things were written yep. back then. Yep. Uh, so just a quick recap of Isaiah. I don't know if we ever did a full-on intro to the book when we launched into Isaiah, because the first portion and the encounter we had with Isaiah was at the end of Uzziah's death, the reign, where then we are introduced to Isaiah, because his ministry, as we've already talked about, spans four different kings of Judah, uh, where it was the last year of Uzziah that he's introduced. We go through Jotham, we go through Ahaz, and then Hezekiah is the last king. So what we're going to find in the coming weeks is, is as we have been introduced to Hezekiah, we're also going to be introduced to all of the influential things that Hezekiah did, all of the prophetic literature that impacted Hezekiah's reign. Uh, and since Israel has now been completed as a nation, as the northern kingdom, uh, you'll now see the focus shift to Judah uh, and Hezekiah specifically, but Isaiah is still prophesying. Uh, and so we find the first five chapters here is what we're going to read through uh, and this week, we'll, we'll jump into a few other chapters. I think it's 13 to 16 and, and just a little bit as well. Um, but you'll find in the book of Isaiah that he's going to be accusing God's people of sin and rebellion. He calls them to repent. It follows that by an announcing judgment. And then you find calls and references to God's future restoration of his people. Uh, so in chapter one, we're met with the rebellion uh, of God's people, Isaiah calling out the rebellion, he, and then follows the, with the judgment of God, and then also the grace of God. And it is, I think for me this year specifically, it's probably been more prevalent for me to see in the midst of judgment, we get to see God's grace. We get to see God's patience. We get to see God's heart for restoration and redemption of his people, uh, which all pre precludes the coming Messiah. And so uh, one of the things that I've really been kind of keying in on this year as I'm reading through the prophets is a lot of the messianic prophecies, a lot of the messianic illusions. Uh, so there's even a come in this week's, a few in this week's reading uh, to come that I think are really fun. And I highlight a lot of those uh, as I'm even reading my Bible, you'll, you'll, if you were to see my Bible, you'd see those highlights. Uh, but this chapter starts with the, the the calling out of the rebellion of God's people, followed by judgment and grace. Um, we start with the picture of Judah being put on trial, uh, where Isaiah is calling all of the heavens and the earth to the trial so they can hear the charges against God's people. Uh, in essence, God is dumbfounded by the ignorance and stupidity of his people, where he compares them to an ox and a donkey and says that the, in essence, implies the ox and the donkey. They know who their master is and they actually follow suit and obey. Uh, and so God is kind of dumbfounded by their their stupidity. I get it. This is all, <laughs> yeah. this, speaking of motifs that are in the prophets, the idea of nature being a witness against the nation of Israel, is a, that comes up a few times yes. as well. And it's a pretty common occurrence. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so you see this moment where God, this trial is being called forth. You see the the, the accusations being made. Uh, and they also, f you also see that like the sacrifices that the, the God's people are making in Judah are now like reprehensible. They're d d disgusting to, to God now. Um, then we get this little moment uh, in chapter one, verses 16 to 20. It's this call to repentance. It says this, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, 
Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And it's this incredible moment of not just the charges have been presented. All of the heavens and the earth are there to observe uh, God's God's accusations. And God is standing trial. He's the one accusing. He's the one also judging. Uh, but there's this moment in this glimpse of grace. I'm like, please return to me if you if you're willing You'll, I will provide for you. You will be given the good things of the land. But if you reject me, you're going to be devoured by the sword. Uh, and remember, like Israel has just fallen. And so there's this tension existing where they, from a distance, are probably seeing this happening with Samaria, with uh, the ensuing kingdoms coming in and taking over. Uh, and so God is, is painting a picture of grace but also that demands obedience. And so uh, you get that passage there. It's a beautiful passage, I think. Uh, but then it continues. Uh, and you see, after presenting this reassurance uh, of the divine promises, it shifts to reveal the, the sinful human obstacles that stand in the way of the promised hope. Uh, and you get that in, in chapter two through, through the first part of chapter four there. Um, in chapters two, we actually see the city of peace presented as a place of refuge and hope. In uh, verses one through four, uh, the com- and then the conversation shifts to the coming day of the Lord, which again, we need to remember uh, all of Israel was anticipating the coming day of the Lord as if it was a great thing. They couldn't wait for it. Uh, but we see all throughout prophetic literature, we see all throughout uh, the conversations, even up to this point in the year, that it's actually not necessarily a day to be celebrated uh, because it refers to God's coming judgment on all those who are not walking with him, who are not being in re- obedience. Um, there's a call to repent in chapter two here, uh, to walk with God in light because of the pending judgment. Uh, and we see this in chapter two, verses 12, then all the way, it says, for the day of the Lord, for a day belonging to the Lord of armies is coming against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up. It will be humbled. Uh, and then you fast forward to 17 here for a second. It says this, the pride of mankind will be brought low and the human loftiness will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The idols will vanish completely. People will go into caves and the rocks and the holes in the ground away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he rises to terrify the earth. On that day, people will throw silver and gold idols, will throw their silver and gold idols, which they made to worship to the moles and the bats. They will go into the caves of the rocks and the crevices of the cliffs away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor, which when he rises to terrify the earth. Verse 22 says, put no more trust in mere human who is, who was only, who only has breath in his nostrils. What is he really worth? And God is calling out the Israelite people, the, the people of Judah, uh, sorry, the people of Judah for their trust that they're putting in humanity, their trust that they're putting in different armies and different and their might and their power. And that's a recurring theme all throughout scripture is you can trust me and obey me, or you can rely on your own strength and your own source and see yourself fall to the wayside. Uh, and so he calls them out. He says, the, the Lord of army is, is coming against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it will be humbled. And then he jumps into this call about, uh, man, you're, you're trusting in mankind. All, you're building your own idols. All of those things are going to be thrown to the wayside when I show up because I'm more powerful than they are. Um, 
So you see this contrast that's being played out. Chapter three, you see this declaration of judgment on God's people. It starts first with its leaders. Uh, God rises up to argue the case, and then he stands to judge his people. Again, so it continues this trial theme. Uh, judgment is spoken against the women after the leaders are called out and presented a case and argued a case against them. Uh, and it's the, the women are called out, which you don't often see, and I, I, you, Evan, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this part, but I don't often see God's judgment against women be so specific. I think this is probably one of the first moments um, that it is. Like God, in essence, specifically calls out the women of, of Judah. Uh, and it, the idea is because they've walked in this pride and this seductiveness and this lust where they pride themselves on their jewelry, their perfume, their clothing. And in essence, God says, you are trusting in the wrong thing. You are delighting in the wrong thing. All of that will be stripped away. Yeah, most of the time, I guess, when God talks about it, it's, it's generically the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. But there are some times where, he, like, there's, uh, um, if I remember correctly, when you talk about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, I believe he specifically calls out the men in the city. I don't yeah. think, yeah. So there are there are moments where he goes specifically either men or women in areas who seem to be exceptionally sinful. Yeah, and so so this one was really unique to me because I saw this tension of he calls out the women, and and then he he makes this statement. Um, in, in chapter four, verse one, kind of wrapping up this judgment call, uh, because in essence, they're putting all of their their pride, their security, their stability in, in their possessions and their beauty and their jewelry and all the things that give them status or affection or attention. And God, in essence, says all that's going to be stripped away. Uh, and then their future prospects of husbands will die. They're warriors. They're young warriors. It says that they will die. And so in essence, the the women, as they're growing up, they're anticipating security and stability because in, in ancient history culture, uh, to not be, to not have a husband, to be a widow is not a, is not a, a good thing. It's actually a disgrace. Um, and so then in chapter four, verse one, it says this, that on that, on, on that day, seven women will seize one man saying, we will eat our own bread and provide our own clothing. Just let us bear your name and take away our disgrace. Because the identity and the security and the status existed in marriage, but also taking on the name of a provider. And so in essence, they're saying that they're going to be so desperate to to find, uh, find protection, to find a home, to have honor, that they're going to say, we'll do all of the work. We'll provide all things. I don't need you to provide anything but the name. Everything else will be on us. We will take care of it. Uh, and because it's such a shameful reality where everything is stripped away, they're going to be so humbled in that in that picture. Uh, in chapter four, verse two through six, the imagery actually shifts. Uh, and the pronouncement is, is this, verse two through six, it says, on that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. So you're contrasting on one side, the women who's normally the beauty and glory of, of, of a husband, of a man, uh, is stripped away to where there's desperation and there's a little bit of shame in there because they're saying, we'll provide, we'll do all the work, just give us your name. And then you have this branch of the Lord uh, that will be beautiful and glorious. It says, the fruit of the land will be the pride and the glory of Israel's survivors. Whoever remains in Zion and whoever is left in Jerusalem will be called holy All in Jerusalem written in the book of life. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night over the entire site of Mount Zion and over its assemblies. For there will be a canopy over all the glory. And there will be a shelter of shade from heat by day and a refuge and shelter from, uh, from storm and rain. And I just love this picture of 
God's sheer might and power. He, he has kind of like a throwback where he says, he talks about the cloud uh, of fire or smoke by day and a cloud of fi- fire at night, uh, which is how God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, protecting and leading them in the wilderness to the Red Sea. Uh, but there is this, the branch of the Lord would be beautiful and glorious. He establishes himself and shows the shelter, the peace, the power, the might that he exists for those who will remain faithful to him. Uh, we shift into chapter five, which starts with a poem uh, and uses the imagery to make the point that the people of God deserve the punishment coming their way, which is nothing new. We all have heard that many times before. Uh, it, they're described as worthless grapes. Uh, in this poem. Been there. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and it doesn't provide hope beyond judgment like the previous pronouncements. In essence, what, what I mean there is in this poem, you'll see um, there's a there's this procl- coming, this proclamation of coming judgment, just like in the previous passages, but the previous passages always ended on a, a moment of hope or a glimpse of hope, future restoration. This one does not. It is a poem of coming judgment. They're described as worthless grapes, and that's where it ends. Uh, and then the rest of chapter five deals with six woes. In essence, that describe and explain why Israel was worthless grapes um, and the coming judgment because of their worthlessness. Uh, those six woes are this. The first one is they were adding house and property uh, to eat them, their own estates. In essence, they were buying up properties and houses and putting them next to each other. Uh, and the reason why this is a, a problem is because it comes at the expense of others. In other words, they're looking for their own interest, their own security, their own stability, their own wealth, and not trusting in God's provision and God's giving uh, of of homes and shelters and things like that. So they're taking advantage of other people. Uh, the second woe is this idea they've been indulging in excessive drinking uh, and forgetting what was most important, uh, which was the work of God. The third woe is they were sinning so much that it was like they put they were pulling a heavy cart full of their sin behind them, uh, and almost it became just a normal part of their life. Uh, but it's it's a vivid picture of every sin they made, every choice they made to rebel against God was heaped up in a cart, and they were dragging that behind them. The fourth uh, woe was they were confusing ethical categories. In other words, they were calling evil good and good evil, which is what's quoted there. Uh, And this is a big one. I think this is one even I've heard referenced a lot lately um, in probably the last five to seven years, just this idea of um, the woe of people who call evil good and good evil. Um, I'm not going to jump into more of that conversation culturally right now, but that's just something that happened in in, in the book of Isaiah, that is actually very relatable to today. Um, the fifth woe is this idea of human autonomy. In other words, meaning that they uh, were considering themselves wise enough to judge, calling themselves clever, uh, that we know how to reign, we know how to rule, we know how to take care of uh, the wicked and live righteously. They were putting their own confidence in their own individuality as humanity. They were rejecting God as their sovereign leader and ruler. Uh, and then the sixth uh, woe here is is the return to ex- excessive drinking, uh, where their heroes were uh, famous for their ability to drink. Um, and then this idea of they were tw- twisting justice for money. They were taking bribes to judge in the in the favor of uh, of the the wrong and the corrupt. Uh, and so that's the woes. And then the rest of chapter five details the uh, judgment coming because they were worthless grapes and because their behaviors were bad. Um, at this point in the week, we'll shift over to Second Kings 
chapter 16, 19 to 20, as well as Second Chronicles chapter 28, 26 to 27. And these are just draw draws the, the conclusion of Ahaz, Ahaz's life to the forefront. Uh, both of them uh, are parallel passages here. The Second Chronicles passage adds a little detail that uh, Ahaz was not buried in the tombs of the kings, uh, that he was buried in the city of David or in David in the same region as David, but just not in the tombs of the kings is what Chronicles tells us. And then after that little little highlight where Ahaz is dead, um, and now this is where Hezekiah would be introduced, Isaiah is still prophesying because remember he is the four kings' lives that he's prophesying the end of Uzziah all the way through Hezekiah. Uh, and so at the end of, of Ahaz's life, Isaiah is continuing to prophesy, and we get this in chapters 13 to 16. Um, he's In this point, he's pronouncing judgment against the world. Uh, so it's not specific to Judah or Israel, but it's it's actually talking about the world, and he's beginning to call out the kingdoms of the world that are, are one, used as tools and, and, and uh, used to, de- to destroy and oppress his people but also the coming judgment for those those nations and countries as well. Uh, and so chapter 13 starts with Babylon, uh, which is interesting because uh, at this point in history, Babylon was not like the major player or the world power. It will be a major player and, be a, and have a major role in the judgment of God's people in Judah. We know that. Um, but... Babylon in this instance was not was not forefront yet. This was still Assyria. This is uh, who had just had come into power, taken over Samaria and, and or sorry Syria and all those things. So Assyria was the biggest one, and then Babylon uh, was the first nation to be called out here. Um, Babylon represented the arrogance and human self reliance. Um, so the judgment of Babylon is first in this section. Chapter fourteen starts on a high note um, where Israel. Israel will return. This is what it says in chapter 14, verse one to two. It says, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and and will choose Israel again, which I think that line, that first sentence is so powerful uh, because of God's, again, patience and his grace um, and his mercy, his desire for his people uh, to be restored, to have provision. Um, and, and so you just see this ongoing picture of compassion, this ongoing picture of mercy. Uh, it continues, verse one says, he will settle them on their own land. The resident alien will join them and be united with the house of Jacob. Verse two says, the nations will escort Israel and bring it to its homeland. Then the house of Israel will possess them as male and female slaves in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and will rule over their oppressors. Uh, So you just get this really cool picture as we start chapter 14 of God's provision and drawing back to uh, Israel, his people, the remnant is returning. Uh, In chapter three, verses through 22, we see uh, that based upon this provision that Israel will then turn and taunt and mock Babylon because of God's judgment and power, Um, they will revel in God defeating Babylon. Uh, and then after Babylon, after the celebratory mocking that happens of God's people towards Babylon, you get a proclamation against Assyria, uh, who remember reduced Israel to almost nothing, uh, that God will conquer this mighty power uh, and this mighty uh, kingdom as well. Um, focus then shifts to Philistia, uh, which has been an ongoing thorn in the flesh for years since Paul and then David and so on. Uh, and in essence, God will, God is saying he will reduce them to nothing. We get chapters 15 and 16, uh, which describe the pronouncement against Moab. Um, and, and if you remember, there's been a long history of conflict between Israel and Moab. Uh, and if, again, Moab, if, if, if you remember, it came from the incestuous union between Lot and his daughter. Um, so this this 
country, this people was born out of incest um, and became this became uh, in conflict constantly with Israel. Um, and despite that, there's a large population of Moabites. Despite that, they're 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 pretty well off and powerful. Um, the destruction that is promised against Moab is that they will be reduced to be to be in essence a few remaining. And the few remaining will be weak, uh, which means they can't stand in reference or in in um, in comparison to God and His people. Um, then we get this glimpse uh, in chapter sixteen um, of it's a messianic reference, and again, I like to highlight these because uh, it just shows the the coming fulfillment um, that God's people would anticipate and look to. Um, it says this on Isaiah sixteen four through five. It says that my refugees stay with you. Be a refuge from Moab from the aggressor. When the oppressor has gone, destruction has ended and marauders have vanished from the land. A throne will be established in love and one will sit on it faithfully in the tent of David, judging and pursuing what is right, quick to execute justice. Um, and so you get this picture in the midst of everything with Moab, that there will be a, there will be a refuge um, for for God's people in the midst of this. Um, and God is is the coming Messiah, a future ruler, uh, will judge in in love. He will sit faithfully on the throne, which is this again. I think we talked about last week the shoot of Jesse, the uh, out of the the, the stump of Jesse. Um, that we we then get this moment in Second uh, Chronicles twenty nine all the way through chapter 31. Um, and again, again, we're reintroduced uh, to Hezekiah. We started off this episode wrapping up Ahaz's life, spending some time talking about Hezekiah. Uh, and we're going to end this this week's reading with uh, a conversation through the work that Hezekiah established at, at the beginning of his reign. Um, it's probably one of my favorite portions of reading in the last several weeks, just so you know. Uh, Hezekiah is introduced as king in chapter 29. Uh, in his first year, he repairs the temple doors. So what was once shut, which we talked about that earlier, that when the temple doors were shut, Hezekiah reopens them. Um, he is working to reestablish the covenant of following Yahweh. Uh, he has priests and Levites consecrate themselves. He removes the temple of all the idolatrous items so that they can use the temple as God intended so they can return to the Lord faithfully. Uh, and this is what it says. I love that we get a glimpse into Hezekiah's heart here in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, 10 through 11. It says, it is in my heart now to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to serve him and to be his ministers and burners of incense. And so he's reestablishing God's protocol. He's reestablishing God's uh priesthood and Levitical divisions. Um, and his heart is to return to the Lord again. I did find the wording interesting where it says, I want to make a covenant with the Lord. Um, when we all know that God's the only one that can fulfill the covenants that are made because human covenants always fall. Um, I'm not foreshadowing anything, but we'll see. Um, but the challenge, the thing that I love here is that Hezekiah in all of his experience that he has seen from his dad his heart is to return to the Lord, which is so great. And it's not just lip service. Like he, we're going to see this over the next couple of chapters that we wrap up this week, all of the work that gets done to reestablish a relationship, to re, uh, to go back to the original intent of the temple. He doesn't see a, 
an altar that he likes and wants a replica of it. He returns to God's intended purposes here. Uh, And so we see in chapter 29 that the temple is cleansed. Uh, They renew the proper worship in the temple. Uh, He led the people to be consecrated so that they could enter the temple and offer sacrifices that would be acceptable. Uh, Verse 36 says, Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over how God had prepared the people for it had come about suddenly. I just love that picture. Like It was not a a long, drawn-out thing, but it was like, no, we're doing this. Let's go and do it. Uh, And so the the people in Hezekiah, they're all rejoicing and giving honor to God because God is the one that, that was able to help them turn around quickly. Uh, chapter 30, I think this is a pretty significant thing too. Chapter 30 details the, the celebration of Passover. Um, and we find that they're a bit delayed from the calendar Passover to celebrate it because they weren't ready. Uh, the temple wasn't cleansed. The priesthood wasn't ready. The Levitical, the, the Levites were not uh, cleansed. So they didn't have enough time uh, to, to do Passover as it was intended to. So they celebrated Passover a little bit late. Uh, and I love this picture where, where once they're ready, they invite all of Israel and Judah to join them to celebrate Passover together. Uh, that it wasn't specific to Judah, but they sent out uh, um, invitations and they called out to all the all the the remaining Israelites from the other tribes to join them uh, and to gather together and to celebrate Passover once again. Uh, a lar- it says that a large assembly gathered. They sacrificed to the Lord. It says that there was joy and thankfulness again. Um, the last verse of chapter 30, verse 27 says, Then the priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them. And their prayer came into his holy dwelling place in heaven. Uh, And I think that that one line is so significant because for so long up to this point, there had been rejection and there had been judgment and there had been removal of uh, turning away from God. Uh, to where he'd even called out their practices of worship where they were detestable, they were reprehensible. Uh, but it says that the the priests and the Levites, when they stood to bless the people in God and God heard them, that their prayer came to the holy place, I think is so powerful. Uh, just to see the significance of what Hezekiah's leadership is doing, what Hezekiah's heart is seeing play out. Uh, verse 31, this says this in, in uh, chapter or the very first verse. Uh, says this in, in 31.1, it says, when all this was completed, so this comes right after chapter 30, when uh, all the, the priests and Levites stood to bless the people, it says, when all this was completed, all Israel who had attended went out to the cities of Judah, broke up the sacred pillars, chopped down the Asherah poles, tore down the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh to the last one. Then all the Israelites returned to their cities, each to his own possession. And here's the truth. I wish that was the end of Hezekiah's reign. (laughs) Let me just be honest. Um, But what Hezekiah has started is so significant and so powerful that it's not just he's following the commands and the statutes of the Lord, but he's tearing down high places, which I don't remember the last king that tore down the high places. Oh, man. It's been a while. Early. It's It's been a minute. Um, so Hezekiah reestablishes the divisions of the priesthood, the Levites, they offer sacrifices on the behalf of the Levites. They gather offerings of food and provisions, which was so much from the people that they, they ate and were satisfied that they had to clear out a storeroom to put all the abundance of provisions in the storeroom. Uh, and then they celebrated God's provision and blessings here. Uh, and then it wraps up with these verses. And I think this is a fun fitting way to end this week's reading. Um, in chapter 31, verses 20 to 21, it says, Hezekiah did this throughout all Judah. He did what was good and upright and true before the Lord his God. 
He was diligent in every deed that he began in the service of God's temple, in the instruction and the commands, in order to seek his God, and he prospered. Uh, and that's where the weeks end. So, which, which I'm going to be honest with you, this has probably been one of my, my favorite weeks of re- to wrap up the end of a week's reading because we've not ended very well <laughs> over the last several weeks. Uh, so it is a very high point. Hezekiah launches this massive return to temple worship in its proper form and heartfelt manner. Uh, and we get to re- revel in that for the week. Well, listeners, before we sign off today, we've got a few more segments for you. Specifically, let's rank some king. Okay, so I view Hosea as kind of like a high-tier bad king. Yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. Well, hey, uh, let's talk about what we learned today. Okay, so for <laughs> me, that was stupid. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was funny. Hosh- yeah, Hosea it was funny. is kind of, you know, he, he, he was bad. He wasn't as bad as the other ones. Uh, okay, so for me, what the my big takeaway today is kind of just remembering God's faithful love for us in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes we have a tendency to view our sin as, you know, we hit, we hit a breaking point and then God is done. Right. Um, and you'll notice that God doesn't get that way with Israel and Judah. Um, he gets that way in the sense of there's coming punishment that they're not going to be able to avoid, but he never cuts them off. He's never like, you're not my people. And well, he he says that he's never permanently says you're not my people anymore. I reject Uh, you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but he, he goes through, he makes a way, he calls them back. Um, and I think even in the midst of like Israel, which really does not like its highest point is under the reign of Jehu, which is not a high point, right? <laughs> like, it's true. It's, it's sad, but true. Um, Israel botches it from the very beginning. They have very few moments of actually faithfully worshiping Yahweh. And yet God's mercy is there and and he calls them to repentance. And so I would say for, for those of us who, who struggle with that, um, just remember that God is always calling us to to repentance and we're never too far away from that. Yeah, so good. Uh, and mine's kind of in the similar vein of that as I as I think the most impactful thing to me this week was just reading Hezekiah. Um, he didn't have a good example and fathered and even generations of leadership before him. He didn't really have that. But there was something in him where his, his motivation was, I want to return to the Lord. I want to make a covenant with the Lord. Um, and, and as I'm reflecting on that, like, yeah, God's love, God's provision, God's continued faithfulness in the midst of it. He has a plan and a long-term goal of reconciliation, of redemption. Uh, and I think that plays into our our present time now where God's not done yet. And so there is a future hope that we hold to and we cling to uh, that we should in turn live in light of. Uh, but I do think that this is important to remember as well. In the midst of that promise that we hold to, uh, and this is where I think the application really comes into play for me, is it it takes effort and work. Um, and it's not, it's not easy. Uh, and I think much like Hezekiah's work to remove the hide places, to clear out the temple, to do the work, to return to God, um, it's never easy work to return. It's never easy work to truly repent. It's never easy, um, to, to clean up one's life by the grace of God. So I'm not saying it's on our accord, but there's a lot of work that's required, but what Hezekiah held to. I think was really that future hope. I want to return to God. Um, And so the work that requires for us today, when it comes to remaining faithful, when it comes to the obedience of God's word in our lives and the the promptings of the Holy Spirit, is that there's work that's required. And we must die to ourselves in that because the future hope that we have in Jesus is worth it. And so I think it's valuable. I think it's an important reminder for us today. Uh, as as we follow Jesus in 2023 and beyond. There you go. 
Well, hey, don't forget if you uh, have any questions, you can send those in and we will answer them on the air. Uh, but that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a finan- or has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, uh, you can also do that on our website. Uh, there's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Hey, thank you all so much for listening. And happy Summer. Summer.